You're listening to Scattered by Anchored Baptist Church, where we are working to reflect the diversity of Hermanus as we gather to hear good news and as we scatter to share it. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. I would like you just for a moment to imagine as best you can Jesus' perspective. He's been walking with the disciples for, I don't know, maybe three years, Every day he's been teaching them, he's been revealing to them who he is. And there have been some bright moments, but overall the disciples really haven't understood what he's been getting at. It's, you would, looking on, you would think that sometimes they are blind and deaf. And now in our passage, Jesus is sitting in the upper room after the Lord's Supper with the 11 disciples. And at the very most, he's got a few hours in which to teach what needs to be taught in which to give them the comfort that they need. What would you tell this band of men in, in this context? Try to put yourself in the disciples' shoes. Jesus has just been teaching them. He told them about Judas, who would betray him. Judas has now left, and it's just the 11 sitting with the Lord there. Jesus has told the disciples, I am going away, and you cannot follow. Peter said, I will die with you. And Jesus said, no, you're not going to die with me. You can't follow me now. In fact, you are going to deny me three times. And so with all of this hanging over the disciples' heads, if you were in this situation, what would you want to hear? How would you be feeling right now? Jesus begins quite a long passage of teaching with the words, let not your hearts be troubled. This is going to be the, the theme for the next four chapters, really. 
What I'd like to do is circle back on these words at the end and see what they mean in the context of our passage. But to start off with this word, troubled, it's stirred, shaken up, disturbed, agitated. It's like water when it's used of a person that describes the deepest kind of emotion. So let me ask you, in this situation, Jesus is telling the disciples, do not be troubled. But how is that going to be possible with all that's hanging over them, with the weight of what's busy taking place? How is it going to be possible for you, Christian, not to be troubled when you look around and you see all the pain and the suffering in this world, when you see the sin and guilt and shame in your own life? How are you not going to let your heart be troubled? What are you going to preach to your heart? Look at the second part of verse 1. Believe in God. Believe also in me. This could be translated, believe in God and believe in me. Or it could be, do you believe in God? Believe in me. Or it could also be translated, you do believe in God. Believe also in me. But you notice the thing that stays the same. Jesus is describing to the disciples faith. Faith that God is the object, yes, but he's also being a bit more specific and he's making faith in himself equal with faith in God. Believe in God and believe also in me. In the Greek, this, this me, it's emphasized. It's like in English we would maybe underline or put something in bold. Believe in me. And there's already something we can pull out here. Do you notice the first part of verse 1? What kind of language is being used? We've spoken a lot about this in the 9 o'clock hour recently. It's feeling language. Let not your heart be troubled. And then notice the relationship between faith, believe in me, and feeling. It should never be feeling that shapes what the faith looks like. Faith shapes what feeling looks like. Faith is the thing that doesn't change even though feelings vary all the time. But what exactly does this faith look like for the disciples in this moment? How, what hope does this faith give them? Let's look at the verses 2 to 4. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also and you know the way to where I am going. So Jesus has already told the disciples that he has to go away, that they can't come with him. And the reason for that is he needs to go away and prepare a place. Well, what does this mean? Is Jesus talking about some heavenly renovations that he has to do? Well, no, that can't be the answer. Jesus is saying, I have to go. I have to suffer at the hands of the Jews and the Romans. I have to die a hideous death and carry your sins. I have to make peace between you and God. I have to face death, your enemy, head on and defeated. I need to break the curse and make a way for you to get to eternal life. And then after that, Jesus promises, I will come again. I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be 
It's like Jesus is saying he is the destination. To be with Jesus is the place where he wants us to be. And then he says, you know the way. To which Thomas responds with a question that maybe everyone is thinking. Maybe we would ask the same question, but he's the only one with the courage to actually ask. We don't even know where you're going in the first place. So how are we supposed to know the way? And before we too hard on Thomas, we know the answer from looking on. Because in the beginning of chapter 13, in verses 1, if you can have a look there, John tells us that Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart this world to the Father. And again in verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. So we have a different perspective. We already know the answer to this question where Jesus is going. And at the end of chapter 13, Peter asked Jesus directly, where are you going? And Jesus didn't give him a direct answer. So knowing what we know in verses 2 and 3 of our passage, we can see the answer clearly. Once again, Jesus is going to the Father to prepare a place. But with all of this mess of emotions that the disciples are trying to work through, they're confused. They, they don't understand. And so Jesus answers Thomas's question in quite an unexpected way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's almost like he's saying, I am the destination, the route, and the roadmap all rolled into one. In the book of John, we've already seen some other similar statements. I am. If you remember last week, you would have seen, I am the door. I am the good shepherd. Leading up to Easter, we saw, I am the resurrection and the life. Earlier on, we saw, I am the light of the world, in the instance where he healed the blind man. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, whatever it is that you need, even if you don't know that you need it, that's what I am for you. And the way to the Father is what Jesus has already told the disciples, and he'll tell them again, believe in me. Notice also in the second part of verse 6, Jesus is not saying that he is a way. He's not saying that he is the best way. He's not saying that he is the most direct way. He's saying that he is the way. No one comes to the Father except through him. He is also the truth. He is the word of God. The word of God that is effective, that raises sinners to life. And then on top of that, he is that life. If you go a few chapters ahead in John 17, verse 3, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Verse 7 in our passage, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. Or, if you had known me, you will know my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus is emphasizing, I am one with the Father. And from all of this teaching that he's already done so far, the only logical thing to Philip is, well, if you are the way to the Father, well, why didn't you show us the Father right now? It'll be enough for us. Just show us the Father. Jesus reprimands Philip. Haven't you yet understood? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. I am one with the Father. The Father is in me. I am in the Father. And this is the hope that the 
this faith brings. And now we come to the mission. If you look at the second half of verse 10, or rather starting from the beginning of verse 10, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. So we see this relationship between the Father and the Son that we also see once again in John 17 and verse 18. As you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. The relationship between the Father and the Son is that Jesus is sent from the Father. Now it's important that we look at what Jesus is talking about when he speaks about works here. Because that's going to influence how we understand the rest of the passage. Some translations would say mighty works. But from the flow of the passage, it doesn't necessarily mean that. The miracles are included, but it's speaking more generally than that. The Father who dwells in me does his works. Notice the relationship that Jesus puts between his words and the Father working through him. I do not speak the words that I say to you. I do not speak of my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. So Jesus is speaking about his words, his works, his life, everything that is part of the Father's mission. The Father's work, that's the kind of idea of the work that he's speaking about. And if we look at John 17, once again, Jesus said, I glorified you on earth, speaking to the Father, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And so this whole, the work of Jesus, the the miracles that he performed, the words that he spoke, the teaching, and his whole life, that bears witness that he is the Son of God, that he is in the Father, that the Father is in him. That's what verse 11 is driving at. Believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. What Jesus is not doing is saying, you've got a choice. You can either believe who I say I am, or you can have the second best option of, well, just believing because of the works that I do. He is saying that everything that I've done, this whole work, teaching, life, it all points to the fact that I am in the Father. I am the Son of God. And this work that Jesus does, the teaching, this word is effective. His work is to save sinners. He is the word, the message of good news that brings worshipers, that turns sinners into worshipers and makes people who are dead in their sins to praise God. But now, Jesus is going away. He will have finished his work, but in a sense, his work of spreading the word is only just beginning. Like we've already seen in John 17, the Father sent Jesus, but now Jesus is sending the disciples on. He is passing on the baton to the apostles and then later on to the church. It's important to notice, he says, Truly I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these. He's not saying you, that is, just the apostles. He says, whoever believes in me. 
He's speaking about anyone who has faith in Christ will continue this work. As we flip between John 14 and John 17, we see once again in verse 20, after he says that he has sent the disciples, he says, I do not ask for these only, speaking of the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Jesus wants to be proclaimed through each of us to the world, to every people, every corner of the world. God's mission includes every believer, the mission of carrying good news to those who need it. It is why we have missionaries to far-flung far places, but yet it's also bigger than what we call missions. God's mission is for his word to go out. And so, brothers and sisters, it begins with your closest neighbor. Each of us is called to this mission that God has given us. So then you would rightly ask, well, how, how are we supposed to do this? This is, a, this is an enormous task. Well, yes, it is. And if this mission depended on your or my abilities, we would be in trouble. God would be in trouble. Because this task is too big for us. We, we can't do it. And so Jesus tells the disciples, I have given you everything you need. If we were to go on in chapter 14, we would see a lot of detail about the Holy Spirit that Jesus promises that he will come and dwell in believers and give them the power to carry out this mission. But the thing that we're going to be focusing on in our text is this idea of prayer. Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, I will do it, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And he repeats it again, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. In fact, in chapter 16, he says it again, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. So what does this mean? I know some take it to mean that I can have a super yacht if I want, in Jesus' name, amen. Is that what Jesus is speaking about? I'd like to read two quotes from very well-known figures. The first says, he says this, Take the limits off of God and ask big, not from a slave mentality, not a limited mindset. Don't ask God to help you function better in your dysfunction. Ask him for your dreams. Ask him for new levels. Ask him for explosive blessings. Ask him to propel you into your purpose. That's what one person says about it. Let's hear the, what another has to say about this idea. Life is war. That's not all it is. But it is always that. Our weakness in prayer is owing largely to our neglect of this truth. Prayer is primarily a wartime walkie-talkie for the mission of the church as it advances against the powers of darkness and unbelief. It is not surprising that prayer malfunctions or goes wrong 
when we try to make it into a domestic intercom to call upstairs for more comforts in the den. God has given us prayer as a wartime walkie-talkie so that we can call headquarters for everything we need as the kingdom of Christ advances in the world. Prayer gives us the significance of frontline forces and gives God the glory of a limitless provider. The one who gives the power gets the glory. We can play a bit of spot the difference. You notice the difference between those two quotes? The first one, it's all about you. It's your blessings, your dreams, your purposes. In our text, Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Prayer is for God's glory. Prayer is in order for God's work, God's mission to be accomplished. That's why God has given Christians this gift of prayer, this access to Him. It's all about God's will. We see the example in James 4 where He's speaking about why believers quarrel and fight among themselves. And he says, you don't have because you don't ask. And when you do ask, you're asking amiss. You're asking the wrong thing so that you may spend it on your pleasures. It's the same idea. That's why this author says prayer malfunctions. It goes wrong because it's when it's used in a wrong way. Do you know the really sad thing about Christians left, right, and center falling for the lie of prayer being all about me? The really sad thing is that they're cutting short their own joy. Jesus wants us to have the ultimate joy. He says in chapter 16, until, you have, until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full Jesus' desire for us is to have complete, abundant joy. And yet that joy doesn't come from getting everything that we want. That joy comes from putting ourselves in the will of God. Work, letting God do His work through us. And praying according to His will. I'd like to end off where Jesus began. Those words... Let not your hearts be troubled. I don't know if you're like me, but when I first read those words, I always hear them like law, as if it were to say, thou shalt not let thy heart be troubled, that kind of idea. But the problem with that is that what goes wrong when we see this verse like that is that we start to place that burden on ourselves. And if we say to ourselves, to be distressed is a sin, then what we're going to do is be anxious that we're anxious and then be anxious in order not to be anxious. And if we place that on ourselves as a law, it doesn't work. Do you know the interesting thing? If you look in John chapter 11, just before Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, he looked at the crowds who were weeping. 
and he was troubled. That's the same word that we see there. If you look at John chapter 12, Jesus tells the disciples that he, he makes this announcement that he, is, he has to go away, that his hour has come. And then he prays, my soul is troubled. John chapter 13, the, the previous chapter, just as he's about to predict that Judas will betray him, Jesus becomes troubled. In the context of our passage, Jesus is taking on all of our distresses in order that we do not need to be distressed. Jesus is going to suffer in order to prepare a place for us so that we don't have to let our hearts be troubled. Do you see the difference between the two? Jesus is taking the burden of our troubles on himself. And through that, he gives us everything that we need. Through that, he becomes the way. He is the truth, and through that, he becomes the life for us. Through his taking all of our distresses on himself, he gives us everything that we need in order for him to work through us. And so our big idea for this morning, Jesus was troubled for you to give you hope and a mission. Until next time, know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit is with you all.